we have a unique ability, you know, under the umbrella of tribal sovereignty and as indigenous scholars and academics to make systems that work because those of us in this arena recognize that we can kind of navigate both systems. If our people are sick, if our people are dying, you know, and if our people are being resilient, we need to know what all this looks like. So making space for not only these important um, opportunities to improve health, but what's working? How do we make it keep, keep working? Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Social Medicine On Air. We're glad you're with us today. My name is Brendan Johnson, and I'm a medical student at the University of Minnesota and a second-year master's student at Duke Divinity School Theology, Medicine, and Culture program. And I'm here with Raghav today as well. Yo, what's going on, guys? I'm uh, Raghav. I'm a fourth-year medical student and super excited today to talk to our guest, uh, Cole Alec. Am I pronouncing that right? Alec? Uh, or Alec? Yeah. Alec. Ah, oh, shit. Okay. It's very much chance. like uh, Smart Alec. Yeah, they use that. They use that burn. So I always tell people it's it's exactly like that, just different spelling. Hell yeah, I like it. Um, Yeah, well, Cole, I think you're here to talk to us about some really exciting topics. Thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Why are you here? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, yeah, Boju and Maguetch for having me today. Uh, Just hello and thank you. In my language, um, I don't speak fluently, but you know, I I do really believe that breathing some life into what language you do know is important to just decolonize space. Um, I'm from and enrolled in the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in North Dakota um, is where I'm originally from, but I'm calling in today um, from um, Coast Salish territory here in Seattle. And so just, you know, honored to be a guest on their land. Um, I'm out here. Um, you know, I, this is where I work and it's where I'm going to school. Um, like I mentioned, I'm from North Dakota. I got my undergrad at University of North Dakota in psychology, moved out to Seattle area to get my master's of health administration, um, and then actually just stayed out in Seattle and and found a job afterwards working in healthcare consulting, and then found my way to Washington State University um, after doing a little bit of consulting work with some rural communities across Washington State. I wanted to get back to my roots and and work with Indigenous communities, and then the reason I'm here today is um, I just recently was admitted to the first cohort of the Indigenous Health PhD program at the University oh, of North yeah. Dakota. Um, and I know that Dr. Edbers was on your guys' mm-hmm. podcast um, a couple a couple episodes ago. And um, it seemed like a good fit to have some student perspectives and kind of share um, from that from that lens and that angle. And so, you know, I'm super excited today to kind of share my perspectives and, and, and you know, what story that I can share as kind of an Indigenous voice um, in a CMNE. So yeah, super grateful to just share in conversation with you guys today. Yeah, well, thank you so much. We we're really excited to have you here and um, just so excited about the work that you're doing. And uh, thanks. Thank you for joining us. You know, a lot of your work and your passion and, and enthusiasm, it seems, comes around uh, some of these ideas of like tribal sovereignty and healthcare. And maybe could you start by telling us like, what is the problem that your passion and work is addressing and then like what is tribal sovereignty and healthcare look like yeah um you know it's it's one of those things where i'll take a step back and, and talk a little bit about maybe some of the history i had you know growing up i thought that the way that i could impact health was to become a clinician you know like many other indigenous students and 
and a lot of my friends, we grew up thinking that, you know, medicine was the way to go, especially if you kind of enjoyed math and science and, and, and kind of were that, that token smart kid that loved to read and stuff. It just, it, it seemed like that was the path forward. Um, so I spent a lot of my youth really focused on that. And it wasn't until undergrad that I, I started to sit back and, and think about, you know, healthcare just as a system, you know, taking mm. a couple of public health classes and stuff. And, you know, one thing I realized was, you know, as much as I had this kind of affinity for being, wanting to be a clinician and, and working with indigenous communities and kind of helping my people, I realized that there needed to be kind of a, a tangential kind of effort on the system side too, right? And I started thinking about, well, who's working for Indian Health Service? Um, and I'll just kind of explain that really quick to you, just yeah, so please. folks that haven't heard about it. So Indian Health Service, um, you know, is kind of the federal government's um, responsibility to provide healthcare services based on different treaties um, and through the constitution for, you know, um, American Indians and Alaska Natives across the United States. Um, I'm no expert on, on the background of that, but it does operate under this um, ITU system of care. And so hmm. the I stands for Indian Health Service kind of service unit. And so that's, you know, managed and run by the federal government. The T stands for um, tribal, tribally run. And so that can be done through 638 compacts and contracts. And so that really kind of, you know, fits into that self-determination and tribal sovereignty piece that, you know, as sovereign nations, tribes know best on how to deliver care for their, for their communities and their people. And, you know, side note, that's kind of how I think things should be. Um, thinking just generally about tribal sovereignty, data governance, um, those pieces. And then finally is the U and that's um, urban Indian programs, urban Indian health programs. And so, for example, here in Seattle, we have the Seattle Indian Health Board and the Urban Indian Health Institute. Um, and I shared a couple articles with you guys uh, on two people that I find very influential to my work. Um, Esther Lucero, who's the CEO of Seattle Indian Health Board, mm -hmm. um, and Abigail Echohawk, who, who runs Urban Indian Health Institute and serves as chief research officer for Seattle Indian Health Board, um, serve as that kind of example of the urban centers. Um, and a little fun fact for people, um, most people think that a lot of American Indians and Alaska Natives are reservation-based or rural-based. And actually what, what the data shows is that 70 to 80% of us are in urban communities, hmm. um, you know, much like myself, right? You know, I'm, I'm enrolled in, in from the Turtle Mountains and, you know, I'm in Seattle. And so technically I'm more of an urban Indian. Uh, but that's the system of care. And I think another misconception people have is that it's some sort of insurance program or, you know, free healthcare. Um, Indian Health Service, you know, doesn't offer a comprehensive array of services, thinking, you know, more along the lines of specialty care. And so it's a lot of, you know, primary care and some limited dental services. And so there is a referral program, but uh, Indian Health Service is chronically underfunded mm -hmm. and has been since its inception along with a myriad of, of quality issues and, and a system that's working towards quality improvement and, and really trying to, you know, fill provider gaps, very similar to what we see in rural communities. Uh, but, you know, the issues really surround just kind of, you know, you have good people working in the system, you have people trying to make that system level change, but, you know, you can only do so much with so much funding, you know, and this, this is a federal responsibility based on signed treaties. And so, you know, having spent time in those systems or thinking about these systems is when I saw like, maybe that's the path that I want to be down, right? Working in tandem with, with clinicians, providers, you know, tribal governments to make sure that, you know, I can advocate and work on something that I'm passionate about 
and, and, and contribute to that body of work. You know, maybe, maybe it's from a policy standpoint, maybe it's from an administrative standpoint, you know, whatever it may be. And so, you know, shifting away from that clinical focus to one that's a little more system focused is kind of, mm-hmm. you know, really the, the high level summary of how I got, you know, in front of you guys today, for example. Um, and so that I hopefully kind of gets you guys a better understanding of, you know, where I come from and the perspectives that I have around this work and why I'm passionate about it. And, you know, just constantly trying to learn as much as I can. Yeah, I'd love to just take one step back and also just betray my ignorance about the Indian Health Service. So it sounds like the Indian Health Service is like a collection of a couple of different like federal funding lines that are being delivered in the form of like primary care in urban and rural settings. So it's like primary care centers being run in different places. And then you somehow become eligible to go and receive your primary care in those facilities. Um, And it sounds like there's also issues of being chronically underfunded from what you're saying, right? Um, So in in what way do you feel like this this sort of network of primary care delivery through this Indian, Indian Health Service, you're sort of talking about, I feel like there's like possibility there and also shortcoming there? Like what what's the possibility? Like what are some of the things that are happening in that space that are inspiring you and that feel different from the healthcare mm-hmm. that people like Brandon and myself are experiencing and seeing and maybe most of our audience is hearing and seeing? What's different about it? Um, and then what do you feel, what do, what do you sort of feel like needs to change? What's that place of where you're describing your inspiration? Yeah, I you know, I think from, you know, my experiences with it, um, for example, you know, back home, we have a, a, you know, an IHS service unit. And so one that's operated and managed by the federal government um, back in North Dakota. And we actually have inpatient beds too. So it is kind of our hospital. So we can actually, you know, deliver babies there and stuff. So even beyond kind of outpatient primary care in an ED department. Um, so you kind of see, you know, a few different models across the board, some behavioral health, you know, I don't want to say it's completely limited, but, you know, it's the specialty services that are, you know, it's not a big tertiary hospital that can, provide everything that we would need in some of these communities. Um, so I think that was your first question. You know, the, the, the question about, you know, hope and, and, you know, what's working, what's not working is, you know, I think it goes back to the people that have been doing this work for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's different, there can be different criteria. You know, the federal government has a specific, you know, like I have an enrollment card because I'm enrolled, right? Mm-hmm. But just because I'm enrolled doesn't mean I'm any more or less Indigenous than somebody who isn't enrolled. For example, you know, my enrollment criteria for my tribe is a quarter, and I'm enrolled as um, three-eighths Turtle Mountain, right? I have children with someone, if I have children with someone that's not from my tribe, my kids aren't enrolled. Mm. So does, are my kids not Native? Are my kids not Indigenous? Mm. You know, and, and so this blood quantum thing, this pedigree this you know this thing that makes us you know basically like dogs you know where you're like is this a pure dog and stuff like there's just this whole myriad of of the identity piece that that's just got it's got a lot of issues itself and probably could serve as a whole you know different podcast but you know that's that's part of the federal government's criteria you know maybe enrollment and maybe you're a descendant and that that allows you to go receive services um when you start to get into the tribally operated facilities um, those criteria, that criteria can change. And so it could be that you're only providing services to those from your tribe. Um, I've seen, I think I've seen both, you know, I've seen that you, if you're from any tribe or you're enrolled in any tribe, um, some facilities, you know, I, like I said, I'm a guest out here in Washington state. Um, if I choose to go to 
a tribally run facility, depending on their criteria, I may be allowed to receive services. And then I've seen other models where they're serving everybody in the community regardless. <laughs> and so in a couple of communities, I've seen tribal, tribally run primary care outpatient settings serve the whole community and they're the sole provider, you know? And I think that kind of speaks a little bit to how many different models there are, um, you know, really focused on you know, getting getting more granular about tribal sovereignty and thinking through how some of these communities are deciding to provide care, you know, for their people, for other indigenous communities or people living in that area and the community as a whole, you know, and I've seen clinics that have designed their facility based on input from their elders. And so they've rooted it in their, their culture and their story, mm-hmm. while at the same time pulling from some of the best practice, you know, my quotations, you can't see it because I'm on a podcast here, but these best practices, right? Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the best practices, like terminology, because I think it, it takes away from some of the historical knowledges that a lot, or knowledge that a lot of indigenous communities have. But mm-hmm. you know, they pulled from like the Kanban system, and so minimizing waste, having medical pods. So you see that mm-hmm. kind of from the Western side mm-hmm. of, of merging the two. And so I just think that the arena of you know tribal sovereignty and indigenous communities taking stock building capacity creating systems that work for them it's not a one-size-fits-all solution but i'm just so engaged and passionate about kind of navigating what that space looks like and figuring out my role in you know putting some you know some collective indigenous knowledge around these kind of delivery systems and how how it can work and how you know within sovereignty we're not necessarily as limited in our creativity about about merging those two practices um you know at the end of the day though like money talks and mm-hmm. whether it's reimbursement and setting up you know mm-hmm. sustainability with finances and, and getting the the space that you need you know those are those are real concerns and so those are opportunities and you know shortcomings that i think still persist today not even i think do do persist today mm-hmm. and you know are just such a detriment to you know the possibilities because we've seen the federal government use Indian Health Service and even the VA to kind of test pilot some of these different programs that end up being pretty successful like their diabetes prevention program Mm. that started with an Indian Health Service but at what point do we kind of stop being the guinea pigs you know and start leading change that's directed by our communities and our stakeholders and you know it's kind of so hopefully that kind of answers those questions i think that was a, yeah i'd love to go back real quick so it sounds like i want to hear more about that practice you were describing of like and this i think is kind of your research and your role your work as like a tribal liaison i think this goes back to some of that work um that like moment or interaction where the community is sort of participating in decisions about what the care delivery looks like what the what the office looks like what the space looks like um, can you describe, have you, have you seen that in, have you seen that happen and, and what, what did that look like? That sort of community-based participatory, um, type of like involvement and decision-making about what we want our care space to look like, what we want our, what, what we want our healthcare delivery to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They, so they had already built the clinic by the time I had visited, um, but they shared in story with me about, um, just the process. And I think I've heard it from a few different folks as well. Um, just being a curious person, I was like, how'd you do this? This is, you know, fantastic. Um, you know, it's as simple as they got their community. They basically built a mock clinic in a warehouse with like cardboard and invited community members and said, what do you think? 
how should we do this, right? And, and really valuing the perspective of, of elders in the community, um, mm-hmm. which is something that you see a lot across in, uh, Indian country generally is just, you know, our reverence for elders and and, and respect for that opinion and, and perspective around building these types of facilities and, and any decision that's made within the community. Um, and so, you know, what ended up happening was, you know, because the youth can walk farther, they put like the youth dentistry in the back and like, you know, mm. so like no waiting time, the elders were able to go, you know, walk that shorter distance to their, you know, to their, to their space. And, and each wing had a different element or a piece of their, their creation story. So the art mm, and everything, wow. I mean, the patient flow, it all had a purpose. And one thing that I thought was like, absolutely incredible was like, they in their I think it was their youth dentist like dentistry chairs or dental chairs whatever you call that uh in the room is like I think they had like a waterfall or something it was like something to like make it so it wasn't this like scary dentist visit you know this like really sterile environment um which I thought was super cool because they they're recognizing some of the barriers um that have come from the different types of practices of delivering care to indigenous peoples and they're you know they're reclaiming that space and making it so you can get that care but you're also in that like nurturing safe place of like this was created by people that care about me and my community mm-hmm. you know and I was just like that's like that's incredible and it's it's such a simple concept to involve your community stakeholders and to incorporate things that resonate with the community to make that a healing environment you know a holistic healing environment that goes beyond whatever it is that you're showing up to get taken care of that day you know whether it's a cavity or a simple checkup you know you're you're healing in a different way by being in that space yeah i love that that's so fascinating too and even on the question of funding and uh, the different systems that exist and the, and then everything down to the design of the clinic. Like it's, it's this really interesting uh, tension between like kind of a, a justice for all and, and there being enough resources for everyone and, and ability to have your needs taken care of and so on. But then also the kind of heterogeneous nature of, of there are cultural differences. And like, if you assume everybody and every community is the same, you're going to be doing injustice to people. And, and yet at the same time, how does that not devolve into some sort of like segregation system, like separate and unequal kind of thing? And so that's a really interesting, I love hearing about the example of um, kind of the clinic design and, and, you know, hopefully we can make changes as well on the underfunding and all those things as well. But that's a really interesting example that you bring up. Yeah, it seems like um, a big part of, of your work, and this kind of came up with Dr. Redvers too, um, and this is something like I feel like I've become more and more interested in recently is just the idea of like trusting your own community to make decisions, right? Instead of like privatizing and exporting and, you know, bringing in labor from somewhere else and bringing work from somewhere else, but investing in your community and trusting your community to be able mm-hmm. to have the resources and decision-making capacity to, to make decisions, right? We don't like that idea seems kind of anathema to how we feel like we generally do things. People from elsewhere come in and build things and set things up um, as opposed to unlocking the possibility of the people who live in your community, training them to do things and um, activating them. And um, and yeah, I feel like, you know, one of the big, 
this is kind of related, unrelated, but it comes from your reading. Uh, one of the readings that you sent, which was really, it was about sort of like messaging and how to be a good ally to the indigenous community in the U.S. And what does that mean? Um, and, and there's this whole section on like rewriting the message of yes, like taking yes. this like centuries old racist dialectic of you know, there's lots of aspects of this, right? They're like, it goes from, you know, those like big classic American West paintings of like empty land where there's no people, right? And the idea mm-hmm. of empty land, it's here for our taking um, to like the drunken Indian, to the, to the silent Indian, to, uh, you know, mascots and sports, um, you know, all the kind of damaging imagery that has been intentionally injected into the minds of American people to facilitate the displacement of Indian people from their land, the taking of their land, um, you know, again, to alleviate our, again, all this is to alleviate the consciousness of uh, a primarily white community that's gone in and stolen land from people and enslaved people, etc. Um, but again, this idea of intentionally trying to change the message. Um, and one of the sort of case studies that's talked about is like Standing Rock and how that like kind of touches on a lot of the points of like values, history, uh, visibility, call to action. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that like pivot of changing the image of mm-hmm. The native community in the U- U.S. Have you felt like in in the course of your lifetime you felt some difference in that like you know like how the how the native community is perceived and thought about and and what is how is that played out in your own life and and in, does that make sense? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think you know it, it's it's that necessary kind of huge step backwards because we're talking about a really tangential issue here with you know Indian Health Service and an interest in healthcare delivery and tribal sovereignty but at the end of the day you know um, the work that you're referring to the changing the narrative work um, which came out it's one of the uh, the biggest you know public opinion surveys that was ever conducted among Hmm. you know misconceptions and these perceived notions of what it is to be indigenous in you know the U.S. and that involved a survey and it involved looking at Facebook posts and, and social media posts mm. on, on mm. those stereotypes. And, you know, the sad truth is, is like, you almost have to catch people up on what, what, what contemporary indigenous people look like, you know, right. there's not right. this, like, we all look the same or that we're, you know, all living in teepees and stuff. And I think, you know, to, to kind of set the stage for my perspective and my, you know, my experiences around it, you know, folks on the podcast can't see this, but for all intents and purposes, I could pretty much pass as a white person, you know, I'm very well passing. And so I've seen some things in rooms where people thought they were Mm. in a room full of non-Indigenous people. And I've heard real negative stuff said and had to correct people or open up and say, well, that's not true. And that's not fair. Mm. And so, you know, I think, you know, um, black and brown indigenous people have a completely different, you know, experience than I do. And so I have to recognize the spaces that I take up and the perception, you know, I know that I'm confident in my identity, having grown up in my indigenous community and having indigenous friends, but I have to, it's not just about I'm indigenous, right? It's almost like we all have to be like anti-racist. And so that's something we're pushing for in our offices right now of, of having this justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion uh, work group is it's it's not just enough to be part of that community we all have to take steps in, and you know and and challenge those misconceptions and these ideas of what we think we know and you know be at peace with our experience but recognize where we maybe weren't taught 
mm-hmm. you know, all we needed to know about um, indigenous history and all the things that we don't know about like segregation and how racism plays out today. Um, because it, it's it's apparent, you know, you just look at look at how folks at Standing Rock were treated mm-hmm. during the protests for um, a couple of years back. And then, you know, look at how the protests today for Black Lives Matter are being mm-hmm. treated compared to the insurrection on January 6th. That's right. You know, let's have that conversation. It, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's playing out in front of us, you know, which is the call to action as to why we need to be talking about changing the narrative, because at the end of the day, we can't do any work if we don't see each other and we're not checking our assumptions. Do you feel like door, though, do you, you feel know? like though, a, some of this, do you, do you feel like the narrative is changing? I'm curious if you, you feel like something feels different to you now than earlier in life, you know, and I only ask this question because, you know, I'm an ally, right. In this cause. And I feel like I, mm-hmm. my own perceptions have certainly changed, right? Like I also was a part of the group. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what does a native person look like. I didn't grow up seeing, seeing the native you know, American Indians a lot in my own life. Um, but I feel like, right. you know, seeing Standing Rock and all the protest work, all the water protector work, uh, reading, hearing from people like Dr. Redvers and, and all the other people who are, um, again, trying to actively change the message has made me realize that like the native community in the U.S. is like at the front lines of like a lot of the things that I believe in, in like a, in, like putting their bodies on the line for stuff that I really care about, like equity, mm-hmm. uh, climate change, um, land reform, um, like kind of everything. Right. Um, and so yeah. like that's happened for me. And so I wonder, like, do you perceive like to have you do you feel like there's a change in, in your like, do you feel like something or is it the same? I don't know. No, I mean, I'm, I'm ever the optimist, um, as, as most people who know me would probably say, uh, you know, I, I do see sort of an indigenous renaissance, you know, I think one big act of decolonization and just like, you know, just being indigenous and like this, this power that we have is just being part of this program, you know, the very first in the world right, indigenous right. health PhD program. So I don't have to spend time explaining my past, my history, my indigenous identity to learn to have elevated mm-hmm. conversation. I'm constantly surrounded by people that that understand where, you know, some of the, the commonalities that we all experience as indigenous people, but in, it's in a supportive environment with, with beautiful, smart, wildly intelligent people that just, you know, and they're real, like we have real conversation and, are, you know, making that impact. And so I think that's that's one piece that makes me feel hopeful, but I think just generally too is, is there's this awakening and this revitalization of taking some land back, you know, with the Supreme Court mm-hmm. case in Oklahoma, you know, yep, Deb Holland, right. you know, right now it's like, there's so many little things that are, are not little things, big things that are happening. And, and even on our day-to-day life too, just infiltrating and being part of these different institutions and speaking up and, and, you know, working in tandem with even um, other BIPOC community members to, to just elevate the conversation can you can you tell us a little bit more about some of those political victories like uh deb holland and oklahoma tell like i i'm i am a little bit aware but i think it'd be great to tell what happened in oklahoma why is it important yeah. and yeah. yeah so the supreme court um it, you know i don't know the exact specifics of the case but it's essentially a jurisdiction yeah. case that came up um and, you know, it, it kind of affirms, you know, that piece on tribal sovereignty and tribal jurisdiction over, over land, um, which was kind of seen as a victory, um, you know, right, right after the heels of, of um, the, the Mashpee getting their land revoked by the Trump administration and mm-hmm. then having that be rescinded because the Trump administration's lawyers were a joke, you know, for all intents and purposes, 
misspelled the judge's name and all this stuff, but, you know, really acting in bad faith. And so, you know, seeing that kind of come out it, it is encouraging because it, it reaffirms, you know, that, that, that focus on tribal sovereignty and jurisdiction and, and power really, because it's, you know, at the end of the day, this is a, it's a mm-hmm. conversation about power. Um, and, you know, and then the, just the historic nature of, of Deb Holland just being nominated and going through her confirmation hearings um, over the last couple of days, you know, just that level to show that that's possible, right? Like for the first time in my life, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll, I'll do this career where I can maybe become the, uh, the secretary for health and human services, yeah. you know, like that just never crossed my mind as somebody who just wants to change a system, but it's like next to like the president of the United States, like who has the most say in how healthcare is delivered, you know, in, in Congress too, obviously, but you know, at the end of the day, it's huge. It's huge for us to see someone who looks like us or has a similar experience be in those positions, you know, and, and shatter those ceilings and, and make space. And so, yeah, it's like, in many mm. ways, I am hopeful that we can continue to, to infiltrate everywhere. You know what I mean? Like just be all over the place and, and contribute in all different kinds of arenas, you know, outside of whether it's healthcare, education, or, you know, environmental health, like just across the board. It's like, if you're interested in it, let's make it so we can, we can get there together and put people in positions to have some power and some say. Um, so I do think Indigenous people hold themselves to a higher standard as it relates to caring for community and caring for, for the environment. And so I'm just like, you know, that's what we really need in this kind of crazy world that we live in right now with mm-hmm. know, the climate crisis and all this partisanship and, you know, all this just political crap that you see day to day in and day out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Raghav, even your question that when you were asking, like, I, I feel as somebody who's also not indigenous, like I've also been feeling this kind of like awakening to the intense value of indigenous perspectives, even as somebody who's not indigenous myself and like learning from folks like Nick Estes, you know, with the red nation collective and, um, Standing Rock, of course, in like environmental. I mean, I'm from Minnesota um, and North Dakota, which we should talk about too, um, seeing as you are too, Cole. But uh, like Minnesota right now is seeing this big fight over line three, which is an oil pipeline that is a huge upgrade in terms of uh, scale and size uh, that's going uh, into Duluth. And then obviously will be loaded onto tankers from there. And there's like a huge amount of indigenous and also non-indigenous resistance that's going on right now to that and like learning and just paying attention to indigenous communities, honoring and valuing the work that's happening there. And especially as a way of paying attention, like what are the, what are the fights that need to be uh, fought right now? Yeah. And, and also, I mean, even this was just speaking of changing the narrative, I think it's fascinating, Cole, how you are kind of you know, situating your own work in health administration and systems building, systems thinking, and like casting that in in light of this uh, moment of indigenous renaissance, but then also the long history of indigenous resistance to colonialism, to exploitation, to all these things, and and kind of like putting your fist in the air and saying like, this is, you know, this is like the fight that needs to be had for for health and people and land, and also making the connections even like you were saying about Oklahoma, like it, it's not just perspectives, it's not just thoughts, it's also like land, it's people, it's material resources, it's like the survival mm-hmm. of people um, and culture and languages, as we were saying earlier. 
still still made me think about some stuff you know I, I there's one piece that I was, I was hoping to kind of touch on today too and it's just you know talking about this idea mm. of evidence right like I, I think earlier in the podcast I, I put air quotations around this idea of best practices or you know evidence-based and you know I, I think there's the reason there's such a an issue with it and something that resonates with me as I read through some of the the literature from indigenous scholars about it is that it just doesn't leave room for an emphasis on traditional knowledge across the board. And so, you know, it, it's a delicate balance of not wanting to kind of, uh, you know, lack of a better word, like pimp out this, all this traditional knowledge for the sake of, you know, academia or something, but even traditional practices that now it seems like the Western world is like, oh, maybe we should have, maybe we should have listened to the indigenous communities like California, for example, had some wildfires, right? And so indigenous people in California had traditional practice around like controlled fires to make sure, you know, to manage that and make sure that it didn't get out of control. And now California is thinking about mm. going back to that. And it's like, <laughs> well, you should have thought about that a long time ago, you know? And I think that's a, it's a specific example, but it just highlights this idea that um, there's this, there's this concept that we're the radical other, that indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge mm. is, is the radical other. When most times we're just asking, why is your way the only way, you know, why, why is, why is that the right way? And it's just a question of like, have you critically thought about your position on this thing that you think to be true? And why is it anybody else coming up with something else is radical? Yeah. You know, like, have you thought critically about things that you think are standard and this idea of best practices and stuff doesn't have a, a, a lateral kind of uniform definition when you start incorporating things that have sustain indigenous communities a lot longer than we've had these mm -hmm. best practices you know and so that's just kind of i think you know any question about what's the big you know fight or something it's just a matter of you know reclaiming reclaiming use of traditional knowledge and, and making it work and, and building things for community driven by community with with that knowledge in place the radical other that's very interesting um because you're right it that that phrase or that terminology takes for granted that like what we're doing now is the non-radical normal thing and this is some incredible departure from what's standard as a, but what you're saying is like actually some of these things are like deeply mm. basic human concepts and ideas that don't shouldn't be phrased as radical deviations um, but mm. it should instead should be asking us why why is it so hard for us to take anything else for granted? Why is it so hard for us to start anywhere else in the conversation um, without calling it radical and without calling it out there and and, and other and um, I, you know? So I wonder then, like, so what do you feel like? You know, you shared this really interesting paper with us about that idea of decolonizing evidence based medicine and and trying to sort of depart from that. Um, what is a very challenging and um restrictive bar right to to sort of reach and 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 manage to to be able to be brought into the system of education or into the system of academic knowledge um what are some of the ideas that that are happening in 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 the space of of um indigenous knowledge indigenous practice um that you feel like could be or should be 
brought into that moment of being taken for granted instead of being thought, oh, this is some radical um, alternative and some radical difference. What do you wish was taken for granted, um, especially from like a health in a healthcare perspective? Yeah, I think what what it kind of boils down to is it comes from a planning purpose, you know, having good data to do the planning that you need to whether it's whatever whatever's going on in your clinic, whether it's quality data or access data or barrier data, whatever it may be, I think just across the board, like, you know, thinking about a lot of communities, they don't have good data. A lot of the rural hospitals don't have their own internal data, don't have the capacity to kind of run their own analytics and stuff. And so they're kind of left behind as far as, as moving to this more data centric um, and, and really data driven kind of decision making at the clinical and operational level. And so I think one thing that you see a lot of indigenous communities doing that have are building capacity for it is, is building systems that work for them internally, data that works for their planning purposes, that's being led by indigenous people that don't need an explanation on what indigenous identity looks like. And I think it kind of serves as an example of you guys have been doing business as usual as kind of a healthcare delivery, healthcare planning model. How's that working for you? You know? And so, I mean, that's something it's like, we're like, we don't need to wait for the federal government to figure out how to deal with healthcare delivery and payment models. We don't need to, we're not gonna wait for that because if our people are sick, if our people are dying, you know, and if our people are being resilient, we need to know what all this looks like. So making space for not only these important um, opportunities to improve health and health equity, but what's working and how do we make it keep, keep working? And so we have a unique mm -hmm. ability you know, under the umbrella of tribal sovereignty and as indigenous scholars and academics to, make systems that work because you know those of us um in this arena recognize that we can kind of navigate both systems and kind of pull the things that work pull the things that don't work figure out where we fit into that kind of hierarchy of governments and reporting mechanisms and be like at the end of the day we got to do what's best for our communities and our people and so if you want to join us and kind of learn and create a new way of doing things that has the best of what we can bring to the table with our collective experiences, then great, but we're not waiting for people. And I think that in itself is a radical mm. act, but is not the radical other, the way that people make it out to be. Because mm. I think mm. there's this idea that because we're indigenous, we only care about indigenous people, or maybe we only care about our tribal members or whatever. But I was always taught, and I've always been a person that has been showed that it's for everyone my prophecies, my teachings, it's about the collective, you know, whether that's mm -hmm. an ally or Joe Schmo down the street that doesn't believe in science and thinks that, you know, Native people live in teepees still, you know what I mean? Like, we care for all people and that the health of the world isn't just our community. And, and that's how I've always been taught. And that's how I always approach things. And I think that's the thing is it's just, it's a radical act, but it, it doesn't mean that we're this radical other that's just, you know, unwilling to to partner and to have allies and to have good people on our side that are willing to do the right work for for the betterment of everyone hmm. yeah that's incredible that's incredible i even as you're saying this and like the kind of the 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 indigenous way of seeing the world and weighing and being in the world and how that is something that is applicable to everybody and it's that that's like a perspective that can bring all people along. I, I find that so interesting, you know, and, and even in the preparation for this conversation mm -hmm. today, so you're from North Dakota, uh, North Central North Dakota. And so as we were discussing earlier, like, I, I just feel like this, 
the last few years have been a time of like learning a lot, uh, learning a lot about my own past and then learning a lot about indigenous perspectives and even the history of, you know, where I'm from and like what, it, so I'm, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but a lot of my family uh, were Norwegian immigrants kind of in uh, North Dakota and Minnesota, especially who came over in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so like, and I think in a lot of ways, like our histories tied together in North Dakota are very uh, intertwined in many ways, but at, at the same time, we've been made mm -hmm. to think that they're separate or something like that, or made to think that interests are opposed or something like that. And, you know, even a few years ago, kind of in another life, it's, it's uh, kind of interesting to think back now, but like in 2012, I went out and worked for a summer in construction oh, yeah. in Williston uh, during the uh, fracking boom out there. And like, you know, this kind of time of resource extraction and, and everything that goes along with that, especially with climate and, and land and so on. And then like on the weekends, we would go uh, water skiing. I went once water mm -hmm. skiing on Lake Sakakawea, right? And the, the folks who I met who are like local from the area, the white people from that area, you know, who had grown up there and gone to high school, they'd sometimes talk like, oh, you know, there's Newtown High School and they had the best cross country runners and so on. And then like learning more and more about the history and saying like, and then, th but this has only been recently. And like through the work of Nick Estes, who I mentioned earlier, like Newtown is a new town that was only built in the last like 50, 70 years. And it was only built because the, the dam was built that created the lake, Garrison Dam, that was built in like the 50s, I think. And it flooded you know, miles and miles and miles of farmland, of homes, of towns, all these things. And then the indigenous communities in that area had to relocate to what we call Newtown. And like, that's why that town is new. And then even like reflecting on my own history and saying like, okay, so like my people groups, they were brought in after the US army had, you know, forcibly removed, colonially, colonially um, taken the land from indigenous peoples and then like brought in these poor mm -hmm. Norwegian fishermen and, and farmers and so on and like gave them the land to populate it right and so this kind of like very ambiguous identity of um, you know my own people at that time were like seen as kind of like the, these backwater folks who were being brought in but at the same time they were kind of the bleeding edge of like mm -hmm. American colonialism as it pushed westward. And so I don't know, it's, I just have been reflecting a lot about on that and like the, the kind of shared history and deeply intertwined histories where, you know, I, when I was living in, in Western North Dakota, um, and I have a lot of family kind of in Fargo and in the Red River Valley and Grand Forks and so on. Like, it, it's funny, like I never met somebody who's indigenous mm -hmm. during that entire time. And yet our histories are like deeply, deeply intertwined. And there's a lot of like shame that comes along with this and like learning about the ways that history has been used and abused and also like fascination about this really interesting and like North Dakota is one of the least populous states and a lot of right. people think nothing ever happens there. Um, but at the same time, like I also feel very curious about the ways of moving forward and like how do we recognize this history? How do we build a more uh, beautiful world of flourishing and like how you know I don't know so these some thoughts that have been running around but it's been really interesting yeah, even just exactly. in preparation for this conversation to reflect just thinking on you're, those you're talking a lot about, I mean that changing the narrative work you know one of the one of the key pieces that that, that that's I right that's right every day too is is that values piece and so what is it that connects us because that's what it's all about right is connection and right and and a little bit of vulnerability about 
you know, sharing and story and, and checking your assumptions at the door. And I think you made a, you just said that you have never met or you didn't meet anyone that was like indigenous, at least for your knowledge, but it doesn't mean you didn't, you didn't right, right. encounter someone that was indigenous, but like, you know, like I said, like I'm white passing, you wouldn't maybe clock me as an indigenous person right away, just looking at me. And so thinking about like, maybe you right. did, you know, maybe you didn't outwardly meet someone, but you know, we're, we're all over the place. But I think just that change in the narrative work really, really kind of talks about how do we make the change for it, right? I think of it as kind of this like ripple effect. We're having a conversation about it today. You know, we're not going to leave this conversation where you guys are culturally competent or I'm culturally competent because I don't believe that that exists. Um, but, you know, maybe you correct someone in a conversation and then that person corrects someone. And, you know, so it's this kind of like ripple effect where that's how you make change. Change doesn't happen overnight. And, and I'm a firm believer in like, you know, hardworking, nose to the grindstone, chipping away at stuff as best as you can until the day you retire or, you know, move on in life. You know, we, we, we're only scratching the surface, but, you know, getting back to just that connection piece and, and, and sharing in values mm-hmm. and sharing in story and, and connecting on common issues that we, we, even opportunities that we have to improve health equity is so, so important. And that exposure does go a long way, you know, and we all have a long way to go, mm-hmm. myself included. Like I, I'm still learning and I'm still checking things that I thought were true or real or what things am I doing that you know aren't anti-racist when I want to be anti-racist like that want doesn't mean that my execution you know or my you know my status as somebody that's indigenous precludes me from having those beliefs or those biases based on the systems I've been exposed to and so I think that work is is super important and and Mm -hmm. that's why just having a conversation you know it's as simple as that to start off with I think I think people get overwhelmed right away thinking that it's a maybe a one hour training or a certificate or something. And it's like, it's so much bigger than that, you know? Yeah. It's the work of a lifetime, but at the same time, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like also our liberation, you know, like you're saying, it's all about connection and, and like interests, our interests as humans, as communities are not opposed. Like we have to do Mm -hmm. well by all doing well, you know? And, And I think a lot of it is, breaking down the lies of connect of disconnection, you know, and saying like, to the extent that we've been separated or met or made to think that we are separated, like that's a lot of the issue. And, you know, for somebody like myself, who's non-indigenous, like my, what is, what is good for me is like indigenous folks and communities having their land back. You know what I mean? And it's this work of like collective liberation and, um, and, and I, I just, yeah, yeah like I really appreciate that in the way that, you all know, like it, it goes back together. to like, st- like laws and like li- things that happen in, in this country around the world, but in this country that have like set us up to be where we at right now. Right. Like there's, um, you That's know, right. like there's like all this stuff with like Richard Pratt in like the late 1800s. He was the guy who was like cultural assimilation, like kill the Indian, save the man, yeah. like teaching kids to forget their native language and forcing them to live in boarding schools. And then like all the like allotment stuff and, mm-hmm. the same, you know, not that long later with the Dawes Act where like you had, the, you know, and again, it's that idea of like so much was lost and stolen, right? Like mm-hmm. you have these communities living in community and shared land. All that mm-hmm. land is cut up into tiny little pieces and then sold to white people from far away. Um, and like basically people are displaced intentionally, mm-hmm. systematically from their, from their communities. 
Um, and realize that that's like happening now, right? Like the U.S. is doing that every day with redlining, mm-hmm. with like hybrid wars in the middle in Latin America, with forced forced wars all over the all over the world. Like these are intentional, like historical things that our country is doing to to displace people um, and institute a certain world order. Um, and so, yeah, how do you how do you bridge that? How do you change that sort of cultural imagination around these ideas after? decades and decades and decades of images of like the Indian mascot and, you know, the black criminal. Um, and you know, like it just takes hella long, you know, and that's why this is important and it's important to health because everything that we're saying, like there's so much for us to learn, like in the pieces that one of the pieces that you shared with us, like, um, just like being able to enter into that mindset of harmony and circularity and reciprocity uh, and trying to create a mindset of extending health beyond the human body into the community, seeing mm. the world around you as belonging to your health, centralizing that in your care delivery mindset and how you think. Um, like these are things that our healthcare system mm-hmm. desperately needs. But like we can't, and this is something that Dr. Redvers brought up too. Like you, we we don't have the privilege of accessing those things until we reconcile uh, the history of displacement, genocide, disenfranchisement that we have instituted and forced onto uh, Native American communities, Black communities, um, I mean, poor communities of all kinds, white mm-hmm. communities too. And yeah, we it's cultural imagination, changing the cultural imagination, education. Um, and how do you do that? I think it's, yeah, through this, through conversations and um pushing the dialogue, getting more and more people into academia, for example. And um, I remember, Cole, you were talking a little bit about like how it feels to be like a native person in academia and like there's something empowering about that or different mm-hmm. about that. And um, do, do you feel like you could speak to to what that is and, and what this PhD has sort of unlocked for you or made possible or? Yeah, I mean, it kind of just all goes back to connection. You know, I think for me, um, I, I kind of disappeared into the to the health administration world, getting my master's program, thinking, "All right, let me spend some time in the Western world, see how healthcare is delivered, and, and come back with with some some skills to bring back to my community, and and have that two eyed seeing approach where I can I can bring in my indigenous history and and knowledge of being, you know, whatever my story is, my my experiences, which again are my own and don't reflect any, you know, don't reflect my tribe and don't reflect indigenous people generally, but but as a way to just kind of like, I was like, what can I gather? How much can I gather to come back and, and do what I want to do? And with this PhD program, I went back and forth between going to law school and getting kind of a Indian law focus, Indian and health mm-hmm. law kind of dual focus degree, thinking that that would let me dismantle the system and, and all this stuff and do all the things that I want to do. And being in this PhD program has, you know, allowed me to start rebuilding my connection to culture and identity as an indigenous person. So, you know, my community, um, we grew up mostly Catholic. So like I said, I don't speak my language. You know, I know my teachings in, in, a, in a sense of like, I know them because we've shared in story and we, my mom read books and she went to the tribal college. And so I, I know little things here and there, but like, I see how the system mm. was set up that I wasn't allowed to, or I didn't get to learn those things in, in, a, in, a, in a way that I wanted to you know, and to not to my like parents fault or anything for being Catholic and religious, because that's what they know. But just thinking about all that, all that stuff that I lost, and I, I have like such a yearning for in my soul, um, just to, just to reconnect with that. And mm-hmm. and I think one piece 
you know, as, as you kind of redefine, not redefine, but re rediscover what I, your identity means to you and maybe what you're missing. And, and especially being so, so far from the land that I grew up on is difficult. Um, just trying to connect and, and be in academia and do the things from an academic and professional standpoint. But at the same time, I can't just separate my identity. And so this program is allowing me to sort of do both in the sense that I'm surrounded by people that understand where I'm coming from. I don't want to be an academic. I just, I always say that and people kind of laugh at me, but I'm just like, like this, this rigid idea of academia. And I know I work for an uh, institution right now. And it's like, I, I just, I see the bureaucracy and I see the shortcomings and I hate it. And I just, I feel like I'm just like banging stuff around in, in this institution being like, why is it broken like this? Why does it take so long <laughs> to hire people when there's clearly positions that are needed and why can't we support, you know, um, BIPOC people <laughs> why does our diversity statement not even acknowledge black people like that was jarring like their diversity mm. statement is so god-awful <laughs> it just blows my mind that in 2021 you haven't even figured out what diversity means beyond a statement so you want to talk about box checking as an institution mm. who has a goal of being one of the top 25 public universities in the country and you're not even going to have a conversation about diversity when you are a land grant institution that was built on indigenous land. Like that is wild to me. And hopefully they never listen to this, but I don't care if they do. Um, but you know, just being in this program has allowed me to connect with my cohort. I mean, I had a visceral breakdown on Tuesday. We had a presentation in Dr. Edwards' class, her younger sibling, and it was on two-spirit LGBT um, QIA plus kind of contemporary mm. issues and you know being a member of that community and as an indigenous person working through kind of my identity and my you know indigenous kind of culture and the things that I need and want and and being really really grounded in that right now I just had such a release on Tuesday mm. and just like kind of just expelled all of this emotion because we had space to talk about that issue and it was so incredibly powerful and healing to know that that we're making that space and so I think what I'm really trying to say is that like being in this program allows me to kind of rebel against academia in, in a sense because it's such a, a decolonization in itself but allows me that connection and a place to know that like my identity is valid and my perspectives are valid and it's letting me build up that confidence to go out knowing that there's that support network and that there's opportunities to connect informally through this podcast and start cultivating some forms of change, at least in thought and maybe in practice as well. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's exactly what I wanted to be doing. And so it's just incredible to be just immersed in indigenous, you know, what I consider indigenous academics and, and writings and story. And it's, because data is story and Abigail Echo Hawk mm. says that and it just it, it is story and that's all this is is connection and story and thinking about generations after us and so you know that's that's all we all should want is a better life for ourselves and for our children or you know our friends children if we're not going to have children and stuff and I think that starts with having more indigenous you know BIPOC voices in general just making space and not just you know inviting one indigenous person 
and being like, cool, we crossed off. We had an indigenous podcast or we had our indigenous moment. That's great. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. especially when it's someone that might be considered Mm -hmm. acceptable. Right. So maybe they're, maybe they have a degree or maybe they are white passing like me. And so I'm more palatable Mm -hmm. to this kind of Western audience because I, I fit a mold that makes them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I say, make people uncomfortable get the person get get someone on that's going to make someone uncomfortable mm. because they they maybe they do i don't know they they challenge some assumption that you have or some some idea that that we need to be polished and that we need to be you know like polite and well spoken to be considered relevant or we need to have a degree for our ideas to be considered and that's not true and that's not how it should be right. and if anybody's listening to this make space for black and brown voices just as much as you would for anybody that you would consider acceptable to be brought in, whether it's a degree or whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. idea it is Mm -hmm. that you have that makes people seem, you know, palatable. It's just, it's, it's exactly that. And recognize that, you know, one story and one voice is exactly that it's, it can only be their experience and their story and that there's so much, there's so much to learn from a continued dialogue with each other, with your peers, correcting people, challenging those assumptions as they pop up and stuff so yeah I mean again I'm just I'm just super grateful that you guys were interested in learning more and opened it up to you know to continue that that dialogue and even to expose your listeners to now you know two people that shared their kind of experience and story and and it's just little things like that are important you know we still have a long way to go but it's just it's a it's a good day when we can do stuff like this Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, thanks for the reminder. Yeah. Well, thank you of so being much. Courageous about how to talk about these things and inviting new people into these spaces. And I think that's kind of what you're all about. It sounds like and getting new people into the decision making roles and into positions of uh, leadership and capacity. And um, yeah, thank you for that reminder. And thanks for sharing some of your journey and your work with us and helping us to better understand what's out there and what needs to be done. And yeah, this is awesome. Yeah. It was it was a good day. It was it was nice to chat with you guys. Appreciate it. This is Social Medicine on Air, co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Atlas. Produced by Brendan Johnson and myself, Pragav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story and work with us on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or Twitter at socialmedonair. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.